Fixing Healthcare podcast with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. And with me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and authored the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, and welcome to our monthly podcast, aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. As listeners know, our guests in season one were chosen for the expertise within the current healthcare system. Their bold plans drew over 10,000 listeners and sparked a national debate. Best and boldest of their ideas were part of the first ever Fixing Healthcare survey, which you can visit on my website, robertperlmd.com. Please go there to check out the survey results and add your own comments. In season two, Jeremy and I have been welcoming guests from outside of the medical mainstream, looking for new, unconventional ideas, along with surprising insights on the current state of American medicine. Our guest today has an unusual background and an expert outlook on the past. Lindsay Fitzharris earned her PhD from Oxford and is one of the world's leading scholars on medical history. She is the author of the best-selling book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. She also created the popular blog, The Shuragrin's Apprentice, and hosts the YouTube series, Under the Knife, which takes a humorous look back at our medical past. Welcome, Lindsay. Both Jeremy and I have read and loved your book. Historians tell us that we can learn much about the future by looking at the past, and the American healthcare system has much to learn. We were both surprised in reading The Butchering Art, not by how distant Victorian medical care was from today, but how many similarities there are. Please tell the audience some of your favorite stories from medicine's past. Oh, there's so many stories. You know, uh, Robert, you and I were sort of talking back and forth uh, by, by email about some of the stories that might bear relevancy to today. And I was thinking about maybe I should try to give you some stories that, you know, and see if you could actually link it to today because there's so many crazy stories. Um, some of, <laughs> yeah, give it a good shot. Uh, I mean, you know, and also I think it's really important to note that medicine isn't progressing linearly. And so there's a lot of things that people used to believe in the past that, of course, we don't believe today and didn't even inform what we think today. So there's a lot of different kinds of paradigms in the past that seem so strange to us. Um, But one of my, my favorite stories that I like to tell people is that doctors in the medieval period actually used to taste urine and they had this thing called the medieval urine wheel and it had many different colors. And so they would diagnose you according to the color of your urine and they would also, they would also taste it. And they did this fun thing where they would also take the urine and they would cast your future using a divination bowl. And I think that we should bring this back into medical practice. You know, you go and you see your GP and then you get your future told by taking that urine and, and casting your future. Um, but they were it's strange able- that sounds we actually do that today in medicine. We don't exactly taste the urine, don't get me wrong, but we do smell it. And some of the things, some of the things like glucose has a aroma to it that is predictive of diabetes, as an example, or ammonia, 
that's a uh, product of our metabolism when our liver is not functioning well. And so practitioners into almost the current time period actually have used the odor of the urine as a major diagnostic part. And today we replace that with what we call a dipstick, a little piece of paper that we drop in that has chemicals on it. But the same concept is there and it does foretell your future. That's really good. Of- That's really interesting. I didn't think you were going to be able to, to make that one relevant. Actually, in the medieval period, uh, doctors, or sorry, not in the medieval period, but in the 16th century, in the 17th century, they were tasting the urine and they were able to diagnose diabetes as well because of the sweet taste. Um, so obviously that smell that's that you can still smell something you say that indicates that diabetes is there or is onset is apparently also there in the taste of the urine. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what they're smelling for the sweet odor versus the tasting odor. And as you, and as I said, the ammonia, which obviously every whole, a lot of household products have is a very pungent uh, smell that can be detected in the later stages. And when, until the introduction of penicillin in the uh, 20th century, the early part, uh, actually doctors did more negative things as a consequence of their intervention, as I'm sure you'll tell us very soon. Uh, but up until that point, really there was little that healthcare could do, that medicine could do, physicians could do outside of some minor surgical pieces that I'm sure you'll tell us about soon as well. And so being able to smell ammonia, you could actually foretell to a patient, you're likely to die very soon. They used to actually call these doctors piss prophets. I don't know if you want to bring that back into it. (laughs) Call yourself piss prophets. What we now know, however, is the etiology, and we can do things to minimize diabetes, the type two, the adult onset, and do things to protect our liver, very specifically minimizing the alcohol intake, which we consume. How about another story? Oh, well, I could tell you, so so I wrote this book called The Butchering Art, which is all about Joseph Lister, um, who is the father of antiseptic surgery. And before Lister comes along, surgeons rarely wash their hands or their instruments. Um, they carry with them a cadaverous smell of rotting flesh, which they called good old hospital stink. And actually, you wanted your surgeon to have uh, as much blood on his apron as possible because it meant that he was very experienced. And it's difficult for us to understand why they weren't washing their hands or why they weren't uh, kind of adhering to what we would consider common sense hygiene. But you have to remember that until germs were understood, and that's where Lister comes into it, before there was this concept of germ theory, surgeons don't wash their hands or their instruments because they're just going to get dirty with the next patient. And so there's probably people who are listening, and whenever I go around the world talking about this book, inevitably there's a question about a guy named Semmelweis. Now, Semmelweis was an Austrian uh, physician, or he was a physician uh, working in Austria, and he put together this idea that if you wash your hands, mortality rates go down on the wards. This is in the mid-19th century. And his colleagues thought he was crazy, and they called him the hand washer. And he actually ended up being ridiculed, and he ended up uh, being put into an insane asylum, and he dies as kind of... isolated a strange death and only later was sort of vindicated the difference though between Semmelweis and Joseph Lister who ultimately comes up with antisepsis is that Lister is championing germ theory and until we understand that germs exist there's no way to systematically implement any kind of change but um, as I understand it hand washing is still a problem in hospitals today absolutely one in three times when physicians go from one inpatient room to another they don't wash their hands and the particular bacterium 
which is C difficile, Clostridium difficile, only travels on hands. Unlike measles uh, virus that goes through the air, this one has to be carried. And somehow physicians see themselves as being sterile in this environment. I think similar, wasn't there a idea that somehow this air would wave through into the hospitals carrying some kind of uh, vector of some sort that was impacting patients back in the uh, Victorian era? That, that's right. It was called miasma theory. It actually dates back even further from there. It's this idea that miasma were, were seen to be little particles in the air. Um, they were associated with bad smells and they caused disease. And in fact, uh, the plague mask, which is really iconic um, to conjure up that image for people who don't know what the plague mask looks like. It's a, it's a beaked mask. And so you see people wearing this in Venice um, during the carnival, but it's this big beaked mask. It looks like a bird's beak. And it was invented in the 17th century by a physician to protect himself from bubonic plague because he felt that it would protect him from the miasma or the bad smells that were causing the plague. And so what he would do is he would wear this uh, frightening looking bird mask and he would stuff sweet smelling herbs in the bottom of it to protect himself from those awful smells. And so you get this idea that these bad odors are creating uh, disease, which kind of makes sense a little bit if you think about it logically, because of course in Victorian London, um, if you fast forward, a lot of the slums would have smelled awful, and of course the slums would have been riddled with disease. And so there was this association that disease was somehow attached to these smells in the air. Um, but it's not really there. There's a few things that happened during the Victorian period that start to call into question miasma theory. For instance, um, the cholera outbreak in London. And there's a guy named John Snow who maps the cholera epidemic to a water pump. And so now we know it's not the smells in the air, it's actually attached to something in the water coming out of this pump. And then you get Louis Pasteur coming up with his germ theory. And Joseph Lister is ultimately the medical person to take that theory and apply it to medicine. So I like to say that the butchering art is a love story between science and medicine because it's the first time ever that a scientific principle is applied to medical practice. Uh, but, but yes, the idea that bad smells um, were linked to, to disease. And so are you saying that in hospitals today, doctors feel that they don't have to wash their hands between patients because um, it's, it's already a sterile environment? No, it's, it's, it's a fascinating concept and why I think having a medical historian like yourself on the show is so important. Our minds tell us things that are not true, but once we've been told that, we continue to hold on to it. So you have physicians who are in the context of being late for their office or having an extra patient to see who are simply in a rush. And they tell themselves, well, the, I didn't actually touch the wound uh, for very long. It's like dropping the bread on the floor, the five second rule. They tell themselves things to justify it, even though intellectually they know it. And that's what's a little bit different now than in the past, as you say. Before the science, no one quite knew it, although, as you've also pointed out, both Semmelweis, who was able to demonstrate in his clinical work the far lower uh, incidence of infection in women delivering birth for the physicians who cleaned their hands prior to doing the deliveries, and similar Lister, who had a similar type of positive intervention, that becomes dismissed because it's inconvenient. 
And that's the biggest piece that sits in play. Yeah, and I think with Lister, when he comes out with this idea, there are, there are sort of two things that are happening. Firstly, he's this young guy, and he's going around and telling these physicians, these older physicians and surgeons, that there are these invisible little creatures, and they exist, and I can see them with this strange instrument called a microscope, and you have to believe me that this is what's killing your patients. And the microscope is seen as very suspect in medicine at this time, or at the very least, it's a completely useless instrument, um, because it doesn't whatever surgeons are seeing through the uh, microscope isn't actually informing any therapeutic uh, uh, what, whatever they're going to do with their therapy. So the microscope is sort of really dismissed, but Lister, for various reasons, um, learns how to use the microscope as a young boy, and he brings it to medical school. So he's very well placed to be open to the idea of germ theory when he reads about it in Louis Pasteur's work. So there's, so again, you know, invisible little creatures, they're killing your patients. It all seems very, it's, it's a leap of faith. And I think the other part of that is that he was essentially telling these older surgeons that what they had been doing all along was actually killing their patients. And there are some funny stories. I'll, I'll tell you some stories in a minute um, that are almost verging on comical about the way that these surgeons would operate. But as comical as they were, um, they were in the business of saving lives. And it would have been very frustrating to go into an operating theater and to lose your patient time and again. And so for Lister to come along and say, actually, you've been contributing to that problem, I think that was a hard pill for them to swallow. You're absolutely right. I mean, that's the theme of why medicine advances slowly. It's still 17 years between a really great idea coming along and it happening. You know, I think of Barry Marshall. Here's a pathologist in the 1990s. So we're not talking about the Victorian era. We're talking about very much the modern era who sees these bacteria very similar to under the microscope. He's seeing them around the ulcers in the stomach and the duodenum. He publishes an article as an 80 or 90% association proven beyond any doubt that the cause of ulcers is not stress, it's not spicy food, it's actually these bacterium, and no one believes him, no one follows it, because the surgical procedure, the gastrectomy, paid very well, and prescribing antibiotics uh, did not pay particularly well, and so they couldn't see this happening until 15 years later, when he wins the Nobel Prize in medicine, almost never given to a physician, that finally people take it seriously. It's exactly the same thing. There's no way these little bacteria, we now have a name for it, for the etiology of disease. I mean, and that's that's an interesting story too, because I remember learning about that. Um, and when I was an undergrad, I so that would have been in the early 2000s, I cited this as an example of exactly what you're talking about in a psychology class, but it was still such a new discovery, really. And um, it hadn't really trickled into sort of lay society or public knowledge, I guess, as much. And my psych professor thought I was insane. Because I said, you know, ulcers aren't caused by stress. This is this is an example of this. And he just he just laughed it off. And so it takes even longer to change the public's opinion about these things. And so one example of this might be bloodletting. So in the past, bloodletting was seen as a 
legitimate therapeutic method. Uh, people believed in this thing called humoral theory. So they believed they had four humors. And when the humors got imbalanced in the body, it caused sickness. And especially if you started to produce too much blood. And so bloodletting could be done as sort of a maintenance checkup. You might do it as the same way that you get your you know, teeth cleaned. You would go to your barber surgeon, um, your barber surgeon that, in fact, the barber's pole, which probably a lot of people listening know this story, but the barber's pole is red and white because your barber used to bloodlet. And so that pole would be put outside his shop and he would tie his bloody rags around it to indicate that he bloodlets and they would whip around this pole creating the red and white stripes that we know today. So bloodletting was was done by your physician, your surgeon, um, your barber, and it was very much seen as a, as a treatment for sickness. Um, George Washington actually died as a result of being bled too much. He had an upper respiratory illness and he probably would have died, but he was bled so much that they think that that hastened his death really in the end. So this was done all the time, even though it was dangerous and it clearly wasn't working. And when it starts to get phased out, so when you're looking at the late 19th century, this starts to be replaced by germ theory and idea, different ideas of sickness and health. But people still would go to their doctor and request to be bloodlet. And there is this fascinating photo from the Welcome Collection in London um, that's Welcome with two L's. It's an amazing medical history collection here in the UK. And it's a picture from 1920 of an older couple being bled. And that's 1920. And so I like to think of this almost as people come into the doctor's office today and they request antibiotics, regardless of what they have, don't they? Absolutely. It's a great analogy, despite the fact that one third of the time it's not indicated and often the consequences of, of an allergic reaction and increasingly actually a worldwide epidemic of resistance could threaten millions of lives for absolutely no gain. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it takes a while, not even just for medicine to change, but for the public opinion about these things to change. And um, you certainly see that in Lister's story. Um, you know, a lot of the things that are happening in the Victorian period with, regarding surgery, it's very scary. You don't want to go to your surgeon. It's sort of a last uh, ditch approach. And you do get these kinds of examples of really extreme cases. So for instance, there's a guy who has this enormous face tumor and it's been growing for the past eight years. His name's Robert Penman. And this is in 1828. And he goes to this very famous surgeon in London named Robert Liston. Now, Robert Liston at this time is known as the fastest knife in the West End. He could hold you down with his left arm and he could take your leg off in under four minutes, which is exactly what you want in a pre-anesthetic era. And Robert Liston in 1828 was very famous because he had just recently removed a 45-pound scrotal tumor in about two minutes. I mean, that's not four to five pounds, it's 45. Five pounds. It was enormous. Um, so, so Mr. Penman decides this is my guy. I'm going to go to Robert Liston and have him remove this huge tumor on his face. But Robert Liston looks at this and he instantly refuses to do it, which is tantamount to a death sentence at this time. But Penman doesn't give up. He goes up to Scotland to a man named James Syme. And Syme is a very important person in the book, The Butchering Art, because he becomes Joseph Lister's father-in-law. Anyway, Syme agrees to do this. And he sits Penman up in a chair because before anesthesia, patients were sat in chairs so that their feet would dangle so they couldn't push off and brace against the knife. And he's restrained. And for 24 minutes, this tumor is cut from his face. 
bit by bit and dropped into a bucket at his feet. And I mean, when I wrote this story, I, I cringe. I mean, I can't even get my teeth cleaned without any kind of, some kind of anesthetic. So it's so hard for us to imagine back then. So people really didn't go to their surgeon unless they absolutely needed to it. Um, and if they were sort of knocking on death's door. So it takes a long time too from, for people's image of the surgeon to change. The surgeon after the dawn of anesthesia, of course, becomes something different. He's no longer having to work against the clock. He can slow his process down. And then when Lister comes along with antisepsis, that process slows way down because suddenly there's a whole method. Everything has to be sterilized and cleaned. Um, everything's uh, very slow and thoughtful, unlike the pre-anesthetic days when speed was king. Based on your looking at history, do you have a hypothesis about why it takes physicians and the medical profession so long and why it takes patients and society even longer to embrace new ideas and change in healthcare? That's an interesting question. There's a very famous historian of science um, who's now dead, but he really shaped my field and my discipline. His name's Thomas Kuhn. And he wrote a book which he talks about this very thing and he calls them paradigm shifts. So what we see with Lister and germ theory is a paradigm shift. Suddenly everything changes in the way that we understand the body and um, it, it's, it's completely different from the last paradigm. And in that book, it's essentially... What, what he's saying is that science and medicine are conservative, deeply conservative, and that doctors, practitioners, scientists, that they solve problems according to the rules of the puzzle. Um, but anything that sort of shatters the existing rules is very difficult to grasp. So it's okay to be innovative, but only within the set rules that are in front of you. And it really takes someone almost from the outside or someone who has a very sort of creative and analytical brain to come in and see something that no one else has seen and to shatter that paradigm. But it does take a while to convince people because again, it's, it, it's hard to accept something so radically out of your comfort zone. And I think that what we're seeing right now with medicine today, with the antibiotic resistance, where something's probably going to happen in the future that is again going to shift the paradigm and shift our understanding of how we treat illness. But how the medical community and how the public are going to react to that, nobody knows. There are two exceptions that I can think of to the um, time frame you've described. One you talk about in your book in great detail, which is the introduction of ether. And the other one is the introduction of erectile dysfunction medication into the U.S. urologic practice. What is it about those two that are so different than all the other ones that you've described? Oh, that's a really good question. So the, the butchering art actually opens, as you say, with the uh, historic operation under ether. Um, and I wanted to start there because I think that if anybody has ever really thought about the history of medicine, they tend to think of that moment because it is such a big moment in the history of medicine. But actually, surgery becomes much more dangerous after the advent of anesthesia because the surgeon is more willing to pick up the knife. He's more willing to go deeper in the body, but he doesn't yet understand germs. And so these operations become nothing more than slow moving executions. And so I started this book 
um, with the first ever uh, operation under ether in Britain in 1846. And the great Robert Liston, um, who was the fastest knife in the West End, did this operation. And what was so amazing about that moment is that a 17-year-old Joseph Lister was in the audience that day. So it was this sort of brilliant moment in the history of medicine. Um, but with anesthesia, I don't know if it's necessarily a paradigm shift. I, I, I guess I would need to think about this. It's, is, is it a paradigm shift as much as it is something that eases and makes the surgery easier to, to do? if you see what I mean. It's not necessarily changing fundamentally the knowledge um, about the body or about health or about disease in the way that Lister's was with the application of germ theory. Uh, we're looking more at something that happens that is making the surgeon's job easier. The other thing is that you're absolutely right. When ether is first discovered, it just kind of spreads like wildfire. It's um, it's discovered in America, and they call it the Yankee Dodge over here in Britain. But from the moment that it is experimented with in America to the moment it is first trialed in Britain, I think it's just a matter of days or maybe a week. And so there wasn't that much regulation at that time. So you get this kind of, um, you know, doctors are experimenting with it. They're also sniffing ether themselves. They're drinking it in something called ether cocktails. Um, there's ether maniacs, they call themselves. In London, the medical students are experimenting with this drug. They're having ethereal experiences. And so it's this kind of crazy hedonistic time in medicine where everybody's trying all these kinds of newly discovered drugs. So I, I don't know what you think about that, but I, I think that anesthesia isn't quite a paradigm shift as much as it is something that comes about that helps the surgeon operate better, but doesn't fundamentally change the way he understands the body and disease. To me, it's the fact that the things that we can see with our own eyes, we tend to accept as truths, but the things that are, as you say, are theoretical applications, um, things that require physicians to practice differently in a way that require that assumes that they have not been doing it well in the past. Those are the ones that I've observed the difficulty in getting people to uh, accept. And as I say, it takes about 17 years. Let me move on to another question because you do such a great job in the book of talking about what's now called the social determinants of health. The fact that people in certain living conditions, certain living circumstances, often socioeconomic in origin, experience disease at a far higher rate and greater intensity. Um, this sounds to me like something that has been there historically. Give thoughts over a much longer time period? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, hospitals at this time were very much places for the poor. So if you were wealthy or if you were middle class, you were treated at home. You had your operation on your own dining room table or your kitchen table. Um, and it was actually seen to be a lot safer because, of course, if you went into these hospitals, they were crawling with all kinds of diseases. In fact, the situation in these early Victorian hospitals was so bad that it was seriously suggested that the only way to control the rates of infection was to burn the hospitals down from time to time and start anew, which I absolutely love the kind of image of just let's just burn the hospital down. Um, I'm actually trying to get this book made into a movie. And I've been out in Hollywood trying to convince Hollywood that this Quaker surgeon, Joseph Lister, deserves this, this cinematic release. But there are some incredible moments and incredible suggestions um, in the Victorian period about how to handle these problems. But you're right to say that 
a lot of science and a lot of medicine advances on the backs of the poor at this time because they are the ones in these hospitals. A lot of times when they die in these hospitals, their bodies go unclaimed because it's very expensive to bury a, a person at this time. And so they're the ones who end up on that dissection table or they end up on the dissection table because their bodies are easily stolen from graveyards at this time. The other part of that is, too, that, of course, in an industrializing city like London, there was a lot of accidents with workers. And so these people also end up in the hospital. And when Lister starts to experiment with carbolic acid, which is what he uses as an antisepsis, he's not only able to save lives, but he's able to save people's limbs and so therefore save their livelihood because a lot of these people would have had to have some kind of mobility in order to work. So this is a huge step forward for them. Uh, but, but yes, you do see um, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say in Victorian London that, um, you know, the, the wealthier classes, of course, were susceptible to things like syphilis. I mean, you see this in all the way across the board um, in certain kinds of injuries and certain kinds of diseases, but certainly the poorer classes were uh, experiencing this at a higher rate. Interestingly, one of the pieces I'm about to write for Forbes is about the question of whether people should be allowed to sell organs. I think it's been one that's been debated in great uh, detail around this notion of uh, whether you're forcing people from a socioeconomic standpoint to receive more problematic and potentially dangerous care. I'm going to point out some reasons in the piece why that's no longer true, but it's going to be the same question that has existed for a long time, which is how does medicine treat issues of social and economic differences, ones that are certainly becoming bigger factors in the United States today? Oof, <laughs> you asked the hard questions. It's like hard, medicine hardball right here. Um, I mean, actually, when you said that, so uh, for people who are listening, I have this Chicago accent, but I've lived in the UK now for 15 years. So I'm coming from a, a different viewpoint to some extent um, where we have socialized medicine over here. But one of the things that that reminded me of is that the UK has very low rates of organ donation. Um, I think some of the lowest rates in Europe. And they've been trying to fix this situation. And so for a while, they discussed an incentive where if you donated your loved one's organs and body, they would the government would pay for funeral expenses. So it's kind of a similar thing because, of course, people who come from lower incomes are going to be more vulnerable to that. And we needed to ask ourselves how we felt about that. Um, and ultimately, that the, the government decided to against that measure. Um, now I think they're looking at something called an opt-out uh, organ donation list. That means that you're automatically enrolled unless you opt out. And they have that in Spain and some other European countries, and it works very well. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, how do we address those issues going forward? I think that's always going to be a struggle. There's some amazing books out there that really look at the socioeconomic uh, diversity between different kinds of patients and how they've helped medicine progress. Like I'm thinking of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which really draws upon uh, those distinctions. I have no solution, though. I don't know. What do you think? Well, again, I think we've worried about it, and it should be worried about. But I think that we sometimes come up with ideas that actually harm people as a consequence. The one you've just discussed is a great example, which is that if people need help with 
funeral expenses and the person's already died. So it's not as though in some way you're compromising someone's life. Why not consider that a social good, particularly because uh, organ transplantation is a benefit for the recipient. It's a benefit for the payer in England being the government because it's far less expensive than dialysis and here for the donor family that sits in place. Let me move on to an another question if I could though, uh, Lindsay, which is I'm very fascinated by the actual pioneers themselves. And this is what you do for your livelihood. Tremendous amount of PhD research, academic research. Is there a common set of insights you have about the various pioneers you've studied across uh, medical history's past that differentiate them from the individuals who resisted it? Or is it just somewhat random based upon your reading, writing, and experience? That's, oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I always... I always think that it's sort of a, it's a combination of many things. It's, it's the person, of course, they're able to, for whatever reason, think outside the box. They're able to withstand the criticism They're They believe passionately about whatever they're doing enough to follow through with the change. So you have sort of that kind of personality, but also it's of course the times that they're born into. So if you take Lister again, as an example, you know, would he have been able to do what he did 50 years earlier? Well, of course not because Pasteur wouldn't have existed, but there's, so, so you have to be born into the right time, the moment. Um, Lister is very much a man thrust into his own fate. And one of my favorite movie moments, which is fictional movie moment, but it's um, from the movie Lincoln. And Lincoln is sitting with this boy who's sending a telegraph on his behalf. And he says to the boy, do you think that we're fitted for the times? And the boy answers, well, I don't know about that, but if anybody was fitted for the times, it would be you. And I think that was a great moment in that Spielberg movie, because of course, when we look at Abraham Lincoln, we think, thank goodness it was him, because if it had been X or Y or Z, how different would that outcome have been? And, I, and we always tend to do that when we look back in the past. We think, well, that was the, the right person at the right time. So I think it's a combination of the times that they're born into. Um, Lister has an incredible background with the microscope. As I mentioned, his father um, used the microscope. He was a Quaker, so he was scientifically minded because that was the only form of entertainment they were allowed to partake in at that time. So there's so many factors that sort of play into it that he is the right person at that right time. It's funny, though, because when I, I did my PhD at Oxford and my tutor, we're, we're taught on a tutorial system, um, which means that every week you have a primary tutorial and your tutor will give you a list of 30 books and you go and read those books. You don't really read all of them, but you, he, it guides your reading for the week. And then you write a 2000 word essay. And then at the end of that week, you have a discussion with your tutor about the question that was assigned. So it's a really different kind of uh, method of education. And my tutor was talking about this very idea that if we could attract more creative-minded people um, into science, in, into the sciences, into medicine, how would it change the discipline? And then, of course, the question is, if someone is very artistic or very creative, would they have the analytical skills required to be successful in science and medicine? So I think it's, you know, it's... It, I think that the people who are, quote, the pioneers, are fun they think fundamentally differently. Maybe they're a good combination of both analytical and creative. And again, they can think outside the box. I know your research now is focusing on a physician that I know, since I'm a plastic surgeon too, 
Name's a Harold Gillies. That's right. You want to yeah. put him for the context that you just described? Well, Harold Gillies is so, you know, so this book, um, I actually was intending to write this as my third book, but for various reasons, my publisher wanted me to write it as my second because they got very excited when they heard his story. Harold Gillies is this eccentric surgeon um, who is today known by some as the father of modern plastic surgery. And he's helping to rebuild soldiers' faces during World War One. And it's an incredible thing that he does because this is a time when losing a limb makes you a hero, but losing your face makes you a monster. And so what he's able to do is give these men back their identity, which is really, really important, of course. And um, he doesn't, there's there's no precedence for this. So he's really just teaching himself. He builds this team of artists, um, dentists, all kinds of practitioners around him. And there's a lot of hard lessons he learns along the way. But he, yeah, he is absolutely, even much more so than Lister, sort of the creative meets the science. And he even enrolls in art classes during the war in order to teach himself how to draw so that he can keep pictorial records of what he's doing. So he's just, he's just incredibly talented. It, it was said that you know anything that he kind of set his mind to, he was able to do. He was a great sportsman, a great musician, um, a, a good, a capable artist, certainly. Um, and I'm really sort of delighting in telling these stories. It's very emotionally different than telling Lister's story, which happened so long ago that we can kind of put a barrier between ourselves. But when you're reading these stories of these men whose faces were blown off in war, and you're looking at their photos, it's just, it's really um, quite harrowing and quite depressing. But it is an incredible story. And there are some amazing characters as well in there. There's a dentist um, who had this Rolls Royce, who's very wealthy, and he would drive this Rolls Royce right up to the front and it would get hit by bullets. And he and he taught a lot of what Gillies ultimately ended up knowing about dentistry. And it's, so it's a really fun story. I'm still really deep into the research of it, but I can't wait to tell people more about it. The other thing that came to my mind was the fact that 200,000 people die every year from medical error. And they can't, the physicians who are responsible can't see it or don't see it, whether they could or not. Uh, some of it is the hand washing. Some of it is the failure to follow the best uh, approaches to minimize infection when putting in central lines. Uh, a lot of it is keeping in things like urinary catheters, which are more convenient for the medical team, but more dangerous to the patient. You can go on down the list of opportunities. In some ways, to me, it reminds me of some of these historical stories. Where else can we learn if we, if we want to try to solve this problem? By the way, 1998, the Institute of Medicine comes out with this a plane crashing every day, 200,000 people dying, and Johns Hopkins repeats the study last year, and the numbers haven't changed. So two decades later, we're still harming as many people from our unwillingness to do the things that seem to make sense. Where do you see that historically? Well, you know, of course, it's really difficult to know exactly how many people we are harming in the past because medical statistics don't really start to take off until the sort of mid to late 19th century. In fact, Lister is, again, I'm always banging on about Lister, but he is um, one of the pioneers in sort of what we would call the scientific method because he's showing his experiments, he's recording his failures as much as he's recording his successes, which was unusual at a time when doctors and surgeons wrote boastful accounts of their practices. And in fact, the surgeons got into just 
you know, debates and disputes, and they would actually get into sword fights um, and duels over these these things. Um, so it was very different, of course, to how we resolve our disputes today. Uh, hopefully, people aren't having duels on the wards. Um, but but it, it is hard to know exactly how many people were being harmed because of various practices. And of course, keep in mind that it's not even just people that were being harmed by uh, not adhering to certain guidelines that were known at the time, but also just because they were harming people because they didn't understand basic things that we understand today. And so I always ask people, you know, what will historians say about medicine 50 to 100 years to 200 years? Because, because of course, what we know today isn't what we're going to know tomorrow. I think that we today are in the best situation we can possibly be in in the sense that we are much more connected. There's a system in place that never was in place in the 19th century. So hospitals were sort of autonomous uh, machines that didn't have any real guidelines or regulations. Um, and that's all very different today. So we are in a position where we can get together as a global community and share our data and, and hopefully try to educate and train our medical practitioners to make it safer. Um, but will it ever be 100% safe? You know, obviously not. Let me push you a little further by asking you to talk about some of the, I'll call it the, the quackery of going around in wagons and selling various uh, liquids and other treatments that um, didn't provide much value to the patient. I love the quack. So the the, the term quack, we, we're not quite sure where that term comes from, but there's a couple of theories. And I think the one that's probably most valid is that quacks uh, were itinerant medical practitioners, as you say, they would go from village to village selling different things, offering different services. And you have to remember that the majority of people in earlier periods, especially when you're looking at the 17th and 18th centuries, they didn't have money to see a physician or they didn't have money to see a surgeon. Um, and the surgeons and physicians were very different as well. So surgeons were seen as craftsmen, uh, men who worked with their hands and not therefore as respected as a physician who worked with his mind. So these itinerant traveling practitioners filled a gap in care. And so as did the barber surgeon. And so more people were likely to have interactions with the quacks or with the barber surgeon than they were with the surgeon or with the physician, um, just purely due to income level. And the quacks could offer some services, you know, they pulled teeth, they did things like that, they picked lice out of the hair. So there were some beneficial things they could do. But yes, one of the things that they loved to do was to sell these sort of elixirs that claimed to cure everything. Um, and, they, and, and they were very famous for their potions. And this idea, this word quack, they think comes from this uh, idea that these travelers, when they would come into the town, they had these little uh, mouthpieces that made a sound to announce that they had come, and it kind of made this quacking sound. Um, so that's one of the theories that this, this kind of term quack comes about. But, you know, I remind people again that today we have similar practices. I, I look at the diet industry. You know, you just have to go into one of those um, diet stores. What do you call them in America? It's uh, GNS or something. And it, that's like, it, it's, it's all these sort of cure-alls that are going to, uh, you know, make you thin or make your hair look better and, all, and nothing that's really scientifically proven. So we have our own form of quackery today. I think it's a very common... Um little loath to use the word quackery because I'm going to be speaking about some very respected physicians and institutions. 
But I think your idea, and I never thought about it to this moment, of filling a gap, and the gap today is one of being able to admit that there's little we can do. Believe it or not, 30% of what physicians do in the United States today, according to the New England Journal of Medicine, adds no value. A good example is we inject this viscoelastic stuff into people's knees when they have arthritic pain because we don't really know how to take care of the problem. It, it, it adds no value, a lot of cost sitting in place. And the newest one is stem cells. Again, no evidence yet that it works. We do these things because the ability of the physician today to say there's nothing we can do for you is not in the lexicon and certainly not in the culture of American medicine. Yeah, it's it's very um, difficult. I think anything that's that deals with chronic pain. I have hypermobility. I have I have constant problems with my joints, and there's always people that are offering advice. You know, you should go see the guy down the road that's got the magical gems that can help you. I honestly, these are things that are suggested, um, and I've never seen the magical wand guy. <laughs> needless to say, uh, but but it is it's it's that filling of the gap when we can't when Western medicine can't do anything, people tend to turn to alternatives. And that's exactly what's happening in the past as well. But it's also quackery in the 17th, 18th, and, and certainly the 19th centuries coincides with this explosion of commercialization as well. And so printing becomes cheaper. And as that becomes cheaper, it's easier to make labels to put onto these jars. And, and it becomes easier to make elixirs and to sell them to larger proportions of um, society. And who's to say in the past that the quacks weren't doing you know, some good to some extent, at least for mental relief of people that were sick who couldn't afford any kind of mainstream medicine at the time. And there's a huge amount of data on giving people something that adds no value, the so-called placebo effect, in a very supportive, sympathetic way. And actually, the data says that it's as good as many, many, many of the things that we accomplish that we believe, not the ones that add no value, but we believe add significant value. Um, it's not certainly clear that the placebo effect well done. In the United States today, we're seeing a resurgence of measles, a disease that we thought was completely wiped out. So far, a lot of people have suffered from it. No one yet has died. Someone will die. It's a very contagious, very dangerous disease. My father's sister actually died as a consequence of measles many years ago in the past. What can we learn from history? about this notion of vaccination and anti-vaccination? Well, I'm really glad that you asked me that because interestingly, it's it, it, a couple days ago, it was the 270th birthday of a man named Edward Jenner who came up with the first ever vaccination for smallpox. And there's a wonderful museum here called in the UK called the Jenner House. Um, it was actually Edward Jenner's house and it's a very important historical site. And they wrote me and they said, you know, we're seeing National Pizza Day trending on Twitter right now. Would you mind sharing a story about Edward Jenner? We can see if we can get some attention. And actually, the thread that I did has just blown up on Twitter. Um, and I've gotten a lot of people to share it. And there's a lot of people responding to it. There are some people who are responding to it in a negative way, as you say, the anti-vaxxers. Um, but Jenner, uh, he comes up with this, this um, smallpox vaccination at a time, of course, when a lot of people were dying of smallpox. It was an incredibly dangerous virus. We certainly don't want to see it come back. It was eradicated in 1980. 
um, from the world. And so we're no longer vaccinated against it unless you're a troop that's deployed to a certain part of the, uh, the world. And the reason that they're doing that now is that they're afraid that smallpox could be weaponized um, in a laboratory, which would be a nightmare scenario. But it's Jenner who comes up with the first ever vaccination. And Jenner himself deals with anti-vaxxer movements in the, in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And in fact, one of the biggest anti-vaxxer march happened in the early 19th century when all of these people descended upon a town called Leicester here in the UK, and they burned effigies of Jenner. And a lot of parents were thrown in jail for not vaccinating their children. So it, it was it's something, the fears around vaccination back then was that their children were going to turn into cows because Jenner was using cowpox in order to confer immunity for smallpox. And he was doing this very successfully. But people were afraid that the animal matter was somehow going to contaminate their children. And so you get all these cartoons of, you know, people sort of uh, turning into cows or half cows. So the fear over vaccination and the misunderstanding of vaccination, you know, is very old, although the reasons why people fear it today are different from the reasons why people feared them in the past. But I think that the problem, especially in the United States, is that this is not a freedom of choice issue. This is a public health issue. And when you don't vaccinate your children, you are potentially harming a larger population. And that's the part that people, a lot of people don't seem to understand is the concept of herd immunity. Uh, it's very disheartening to see this happening around the world. And whenever I post things on my Instagram or Twitter accounts, I get more and more anti-vaxxer arguments on my page. Now, some of these uh, concerns from anti-vaxxers that vac vaccinations, we should strive for them, of course, to always be safer. We should scrutinize what goes into vaccines. But the idea that they're somehow, somehow doing more harm than good is there, there's no scientific evidence to suggest this. I don't know how we're going to stop this trend, but it is very frightening. And I think that we're going to see the return of very old diseases, as you say, measles. And as a medical historian, I can't tell people enough how many diaries and letters I read of parents from the early 19th century who lost children to these diseases that we've eradicated today and how devastating that was to constantly be losing children um, in childhood was very dangerous time in these earlier periods. So I hope that we're not going to see a return of that. But I don't know how the message is going to get out there because um, it seems that this is a movement that's growing and growing. One of the things I'm very interested in is if you look at a lot of the things that are commonly held folk beliefs or old wives tales, uh, such as, you know, the, the blood of an execution victim having magical properties or, or things like that, that are, or the, the magical properties of, of, you know, dried mummy as medicine. Um, what are some of the things that are from old wives tales that, you know, once new information comes out, how do people convince a gullible public against, you know, kind of long-term commonly held beliefs? Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of, one of the things I love to talk about on my YouTube um, or on social media is this thing called corpse medicine. And so there's this idea that um, certain consuming parts of the body could cure you, cure a person of certain ailments. So you do get, uh, for instance, people who have epilepsy lining up at the scaffold of someone who's going to lose their head because this idea that if they drink the blood of a life cut short, it was very powerful and it would cure them of this uh, disease or this condition that was very misunderstood at the time, very scary as well, because it was associated with things like witchcraft. Um, so people are very desperate to, to cure themselves of epilepsy. Um, you, you get, as you say, touching the hand of an executed criminal could bestow long life and these kinds of folklores, 
I mean, corpse medicine isn't just uh, the purview of um, sort of white witches and and the public. There are actual medical practitioners who uh, partake in these kinds of different cures and stuff. And I always remind everybody that today we we practice a form of corpse medicine with organ transplantation. We're not consuming uh, the body, but we are taking parts of a dead body into our own to cure us. Um, but so it's, again, I think it goes back to what Robert and I were talking about. It takes a while to break down, especially something that is connected with superstitions or um, something that just sort of becomes part of folklore, especially when dealing with executed criminals. That, that takes a long time. It's at this time in the 18th and 19th century, the medical community isn't that strong in the sense that it is today. It's not as respected. And so these kinds of beliefs persist for quite a long time, well into the 20th century. What are some of the worst and most interesting cases of quackery, of medical quackery that you've seen throughout history? And again, you know, the story of Special K is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> oh my God. Are you, you mean Kellogg's? Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I know, K, Kellogg's. Corn, yeah, what, was it Special K or Corn Yeah, flakes? it's, uh, yeah, Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Um, there's there's going to undoubtedly be people out there that know this story, but it's, it's, it's definitely worth repeating. So um, in the 19th century, medical practitioners became obsessed with masturbation um, or preventing masturbation. They felt that it was dangerous to the patient and that the patient was, you get all these sort of caricatures of, of the patient languishing on the couch and he's, he's masturbated too much and his life force is gone. And um, Dr. Kellogg was one of these doctors who believed that. And he had this um, sanatorium in, uh, I believe it was in Michigan, and he wanted to prevent his patients from masturbating because it was detrimental to their health. And so he thought that a diet low in taste and high in fiber would prevent or dampen the fire in their belly and, and prevent them from masturbating. And so he creates this thing that eventually becomes known as Kellogg's cornflakes. And uh, Reverend Graham also creates something which later becomes the graham cracker. And so everybody listening to that, I'm glad that I can ruin those two things for you. Um, you can think about that next time you pour yourself a bowl of, of Kellogg's cornflakes. I think that when we're looking at, to go back to your original question, um, quackery in the past, it's, as a medical historian, I'm very hesitant to call things quackery just because they don't work according to how we understand things today. So of course, a lot of the things that, for instance, mainstream medicine was doing in Lister's time uh, would have been respected and uh, practiced quite uh, frequently by the medical community, but today have been disproven. And so it's difficult to call it quackery because, again, going back to what will people say of us in 200 years. But, but you know, when you look at the anti-masturbation stuff, you can't help but chuckle and, and kind of think that that was a bit of quackery right there. And Kellogg was just, you know, absolutely insane about it. And um, some of his practices were very harmful as well. Um, so that, that was unfortunate. It wasn't just the Kellogg's cornflakes that he was feeding to people. He was doing some other uh, kind of terrible stuff on the side. It'd be nice for you to tell the listeners a bit more about your view historically of the intersection of religion and ethics, or at least perceived ethics, as you're describing a belief that something like masturbation is um, harmful, uh, which obviously comes out of a social realm. Some of the other things related to abortion, as an example, this intersection of religion values, ethics, morals, and medicine, which is theoretically a purely scientific endeavor. How do you see that across time? 
I mean, certainly in earlier periods, you do have that intersection and religion informing uh, medicine uh, more fiercely, especially when you look back at sort of um, forbidding, for instance, dissection only under certain circumstances. Although the idea that the church forbid dissections entirely is a bit of a myth because in, it, under certain and right um, circumstances, dissection showed that God's miracle, like if you opened up the body, that this was a miracle and, and God was behind it. And so in some cases, you even get um, stories of dissections being performed in the Vatican. But these are very ceremonial dissections. They weren't done for educational purposes. But certainly you get that, you know, religion informing and guiding medicine for various periods. And even with Lister, his Quaker uh, beliefs guide him um, in the sense that he feels a duty to humanity. And you see this a lot in my book um, where he, he, he actually has a mental breakdown and he leaves medical school at one point and he eventually returns to it. Some of that is pressure from his family who believes that he should return. But there's also that sense of duty that comes from his Quaker background. Um, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, as you, as you say, that that still continues, especially when you look at things like abortion um, and some misinformation around um, various procedures that we do. But it's one of those, it's, you know, it's, it's an impossible question to answer in such a short time. Thank you again, Lindsay. Next month, Kevin Foe will be our final guest of season two. He's a board-certified internal medicine physician and co-author of the book, Establishing, Managing, and Protecting Your Online Reputation, a social media guide for physicians and medical practices. He's best known as the founder and editor of KevinMD, a website aimed at medical professionals with more than 150,000 subscribers. Our conversation will focus on the role that social and digital media can play in improving American healthcare. We can't wait to learn from his experiences and share his expertise with you. Robbie, as we predicted, Lindsay's stories were both engaging and educational. What are some of the key points that stood out to you in today's episode? American healthcare, despite all the advances in technology and science, continues to resemble the Victorian era in so many ways. Too many physicians don't wash their hands between hospitalized patients and doctors, and they don't view themselves accountable when patients develop life-threatening infections as a result. As a profession, we're slow to change medical practice, particularly when positive changes are likely to have a negative impact on the income or lifestyle of the doctor. We continue to undervalue the power of social determinants of health. And despite the importance of evidence-based medicine, surgeons continue to perform procedures that add no value and can result in death, eerily similar to the days of bloodletting in the past. I'm hopeful that our listeners, both those providing and receiving medical care, will learn from these powerful lessons and that we all will make better choices in the future. Now let's turn to some listener feedback. We asked you for your ideas on how to fix American healthcare, and we've received hundreds of responses on robertperlmd.com. Today we'll hear from listeners who wrote in about opportunities to improve mental health services. Dr. Danielle Armis writes that the future of American healthcare is dependent on access to psychiatric care, counseling services, and primary care. She calls for the destigmatization of mental health conditions and mental health care. Kristen Sterley, MD, told us that our nation should, quote, stop waiting until people have true crisis of mental health and that we should start addressing basic anxiety, depression, and adjustment reactions in youth and young adults, 
She says we must teach resilience and use validated non-prescription approaches to mental health early and often. Finally, Heidi Creighton recommends integrating mental health care into primary health care and pediatrics. She says both forms of health care offer a cost-efficient and preventative approach to health care overall. Robbie, what do you think of our listeners' feedback? I concur we need to do a better job of integrating mental health services with the rest of medical practice. More and more researchers are recognizing the impact of mental health on clinical outcomes, chronic disease, and overall health and life expectancy. We fail to address the patient's psychological needs. We are at risk of creating many adverse effects, including poor quality of care and higher costs. Some of the most effective models I've seen are programs that embed healthcare professionals into primary care modules, just as Heidi suggested. Thanks to Danielle, Kristen, and Heidi, and everyone who has participated so far in the survey to fix American healthcare. You can find all the featured comments on our Fixing Healthcare website. We also invite you to leave your own thoughts and recommendations at robertpearlmd.com. We'll continue to share ideas from our listeners in the future. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. That stands for healthcare. For additional information on a variety of healthcare topics, please visit my website, robertperlmd.com. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.